if you go to a, a building site, uh, you you often see the signs for dig safe. And, and I like to think of it as like scale safe, meaning once you get to a certain size, you can unintentionally, just by you know virtue of, of speed and pace, lose your connection to the thing that your specific job every single day impacts. And when I say scale safe, it's the idea that your team knows the vision, they know the objectives, they know the definition of their role. It may sound silly, you know, if a manager is listening to this, they're probably like, wow, how could you, how could you not know that? Um, but it happens. Ground Up, episode 18. Whoever gets closest to the customer wins. This is the ideal, the mission, that Drift, a conversational marketing platform, is built off of. It informs every aspect of the company, from its internal culture to the product's core functionality, marketing, sales. It's a literal expression of how Drift operates. So when Drift added Julie Hogan as its VP of Customer Success and Services last year, the role came with a particular significance. How does a company continue to scale the seemingly unscalable? conversations, relationships, connection, in a world of automation. There's a reason Drift added Hogan to continue figuring that out. She comes with a breadth of experience, not just from her seven plus years at HubSpot, but also from her time spent in the hospitality space, developing skills she now looks for when hiring. If there's anyone that can realize Drift's bold mission, it's Hogan. David Cancel called her a legend, OG, and phenom that rose through the ranks. And that's where I started, from a place of clear humility, and asked Julie what it's like to come into an organization with those expectations. Well, first, uh, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, place place of humility. Um, David has a way with, with words and then also, too, holding you accountable to them. I can tell you my first day of drift, I was out for a walk with Elias and he was like, okay, you've literally been here for six hours. What are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do today? So rest assured, that was all, all kind kind of him to say, but I was I was put to work immediately. <laughs> um, so I, I was at, uh, I started my career at Deloitte Consulting. So I was a, an analyst and worked on large-scale technology implementation projects, uh, people change projects. It was right around the time when when the economy changed in 2008. And uh, I had a friend who I worked with who sort of equally despised the corporate nature of, of what we did. We learned a lot, and I think we both enjoyed the learning, but I had I had sort of fantasized and romanticized about this idea of going to a startup. And so he left and went to this place in Boston. I was living in Pennsylvania in Pennsylvania at the time, went to this place right outside Boston called HubSpot that was, I think, just under 50 employees when he joined. And he went and of my friends who left corporate consulting, he was the one person I stayed in touch with who really fell in love with he with what he was doing because it was interesting. It was fast. Um, he was building things, he was learning things, he was screwing things up, and I, I love the idea of that. So I joined uh, right at the beginning of 2010 and was there for a little a little bit under eight years and uh, loved it. You know, I thought maybe I'd work there for a few years and a customer would hire me. You know, I was so used to being customer-facing with consulting. 
that oh, I'd work for a customer and maybe a customer would hire me, but fell in love with the the business, the pace, uh, what, what a SaaS model is. And I've worked really closely with the team when we we started to build the company out internationally and, and was really fortunate to have the opportunity to, to be a participant in that. So spent some time uh, building out some of the offices in, in different locations around the world. And then uh, David and I had, had stayed in touch and Drift was at a phase where they wanted to start thinking about what customer success could be and would look like. And it seems like the right fit, you know, jumping in and and if I were going to do it over again and and start uh, a team and, and participate at a company at this size, uh, sort of now or never. And so I, I jumped on board at the beginning of the fall. Right. So your your background wasn't always necessarily in quote unquote customer success. No, no. In fact, um, I didn't know what it was. You know, if you asked me ten years ago what customer success was, I I would literally have no clue. <laughs> Yeah, as mo- I mean, even now the, the term can be pretty ambiguous, which we'll get into in a sec. But yes, um, yes, absolutely. We, and we've chatted before, and and you said you you kind of poked fun at, at David Cancel when you first joined on. I'm sick of seeing faces of Dave's. Obviously, it was said in <laughs> jest, but there's there's a lesson here, right? About sort of putting the customer first, and I guess, uh, yeah, what, like what's your retelling of that that little yeah, uh, nugget? So. So I'll, I preface it by saying I have an, an affinity for faces of Dave. My husband is a Dave. My first son's name is Dave. I work with Dave Cancel, Dave Gerhardt, Dave Vital is on our finance team. I work with all these wonderful Daves. And you know, if you're if you're somebody who's followed Seeking Wisdom, um, or you had even been in our office this summer or at Hypergrowth, we had a lot of things that had David Cancel's face and Dave Gerhardt's face on them. And, you know, one of my observations, uh, I said it half kidding, but, but pretty serious. One of my observations today was, you know, we talk about being customer centric and, and thinking about how we can meet the needs of our customers and, and put them in the center of our universe. But I, I just keep seeing your face and DG's face. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, not that my, my first call to action was redecorating and remodeling, but uh, we took it pretty seriously, and, and, I, and I meant it. In that, if you're if you're surrounded by reflections of yourself all day, right, your brand, uh, your own employees, that's important. But if you're truly building a customer focused atmosphere, you want the customers around you as much as possible. So not only their faces, but their brands, their logos, their stories. Uh, we did a couple of things as well. So we got faces. We still will see David's face. Like, let's let's be real. He's a big, important part of our brand. Uh, but we see a lot more of our customer faces now on our website, on our walls. Uh, we have a customer autograph wall. So when customers come to visit us, which uh, we hope they they do and, and they can, uh, they come in, they they sign the wall, they maybe leave a little bit of a of a goal that they have about what they want to do with Drift. Uh, they'll leave a sticker from their their own company behind, and it, it's just cool to see these things brought to life. And, and because of that, you, you start to tell the stories. Uh, you know, you find yourself sometimes even talking about a customer scenario and you see people's hands, you know, we're small enough still that we're in sort of a large office space, hands pointing down and say, remember, I remember talking to Andrew and he had that need and we did it this way. And I talked to this person and it, it brings the, the conversations to life. And that's, that's the foundation of, of what we're trying to do here. Yeah. You've, you've talked before about the customer just shouldn't be like a red dot, right? Or a green dot. In a, yes. On yes. A, either on a, on a UI somewhere that's telling you they're inactive or active or in a spreadsheet. Um, right. It should be a, a living, breathing thing, right? Yes. And yes. just as an observer, 
like you said, the the homepage on DriftSite, it rotates. Uh, obviously, I go to it enough uh, to, to know that. Between different customers that you guys have, a lot of the social um, images that you guys share obviously focus on the customer as well. So yeah, it definitely seems like there's been a renewed focus on showcasing that in recent months. Um, what? Uh, how does that change things? Like, wh- what is... Uh, obviously, the the benefits to that are, are could be hard to measure. But like, what have you, what have you seen as a result of showcasing the customers more? What does that do for the brand? Sure. So even even as you brought up, uh, you know, a customer being who the customer is, so their business, their goals, uh, their objectives, as opposed to the red, yellow, green, purple dot they represent in Salesforce or whatever tool you're using. Um, even even that shift has made a big difference in the way we work and the way we do our work every day. And you know, it's not to say that you have to throw systems and process out the window, but as, as somebody who's customer facing, you're very used to the limits of control. So you have control uh, that's usually driven by, you know, hierarchy of a company telling you exactly how you engage with your, your portfolio or your book of business, whatever you call it. So you have a certain amount of customers and there are rules for how you're supposed to engage with them. So you must touch them every X number of days and you must update this form field and you must update... Um, X, Y, or Z, and you must respond to these alerts given the color distinction that they represent. And suddenly, the conversations you have with your peers and your partners across the company aren't about, um, you know, Susan's company in Des Moines, Iowa, who's trying to generate X number of leads before this big event they have. But, oh, I'm on the CRM naughty list because I haven't gotten back in touch with 24 customers by this date. And and it, it drives a totally different conversation. And so instead of thinking about control, it's the context and it's the customer context. So yes, we have objectives we need to hit and there are numbers we have to hit. We're a business, we're a fast growing business, but um, we really believe that in in order to achieve those things, we want to give the team members who are at the forefront of the customer experience as much context as possible for them to drive the control. So for them to drive the bus, to give them the keys. So they look at their portfolio, uh, their book of business, not as, you know, a list of customers they have to check things off of in Salesforce to make a boss happy, but instead they they take on this lens or perspective as if they were a VC, right? A little bit of a different game. Um, but if you're a VC, you know, I'm, I'm certain you're not looking at a report and saying, well, the sky's in the green or the sky's in the red because I talked to him X number of days. You're constantly evaluating what is the investment and what is the potential risk and where's the growth opportunity. And based off of that, you match that customer or that company where they're at because of their needs, not because of a controlled system driving what your engagement should be. So it's it's really trying to provide as much context as possible to the people who are responsible for those relationships and making those relationships as human as possible. And it starts with how you manage your day and how you're managed as a person in the organization. For sure. And, and it's one thing, obviously, the, uh, a great starting point is the product has to align with with that, right? And, and Drift obviously does a really good job of of, of context within, um, you know, uh, your, your, your customer's workflow. But obviously, uh, when they're trying to book meetings, or they're trying to engage prospects and people on their site, right, like Drift is, is, is a tool that uh, engages within context, right, which is, which is, uh, which is important, right. But the marketing also with Drift does something similar, um, where it's, again, treats, 
treats the the user as a as a living breathing thing and uh again from from an outsider's perspective it looks like drift has always tried to do something that is really hard which is scale like that one to one type of relationship with the customer right and and you've you've talked a little bit about this on on the drift podcast seeking wisdom um but that that's largely been looked at like one-to-one customer relationships in a, in a SaaS business. It's, it doesn't scale, right? It's, it's really hard to scale. Everything gets automated. Uh, drift has always positioned itself to be like the antithesis of that. Right. Um, and I just have a, a few examples as an observer of seeing that, but like, what's your approach and what's your, um, sort of philosophy around scaling like the customer relationship? Can, can it be done on, on the, on the one-to-one basis that drift seemingly tries to do, um, through all the different channels that you guys do it? Sure. So I, I almost think we, I hear that question a lot and, and the conversation around scale happens so much. And I, I think it's, it's almost overdone for this reason, right? Like you'll, you'll pick a problem in SaaS, often something like this, you know, can you scale it? And there's this evolution to scale. Uh, it's something Pete and I actually a long time ago used to talk about and challenging the notion of like, screw it if it doesn't scale, like, don't worry about it, just do it. Um, but I think as you're evolving, you know, in, in the case I, I, I'm sort of living and breathing every day, which is the customer relationships, you you start scrappy, right? No matter what, if you're you're starting a team, you're you're starting an engagement methodology, uh, or or no methodology, right? You want to go in this universe of just providing context and not control. You start scrappy, so you're trying to figure it out, and you know maybe that means you can touch a certain number of customers because you don't have all these other layers. And the assumption is that that's that's just with certainty going to break because when you go from scrappy to scale, there are things that happen that make that thing not true, and. My, my take is that there's a, a step in between, if not done well, scrappy can turn into sloppy if you don't have structure to help you scale. And so the structure equals, let's talk about what we're really trying to do and define what scale means. Does scale mean that you are going to have an in-depth 50-hour engagement with every single customer who comes on board? Probably not. Um, if what you're trying to achieve is something that's repeatable with some outliers and also you have the time to spend as much of that as possible with things that matter, then let's define what those things are and let's help create the structure in your day that allows you to do them and gives you the power to make sure you have the tools at your, at your disposal to make those things happen. Um, and so I think it's, it's thinking about it that way, right? So as we move from scrappy to something that will work, so we define will work as scaling, you know, will work when we're a team of 20, 30, 50 global. Um, what are the things we need to do now to make sure that that move from scrappy to scalable doesn't turn into something that's sloppy because we haven't thought through all the ways it can fail? Um, an example I'll share with you is, you know, with churn, uh, I, I call it like the, the least glamorous uh, but most important metric of SaaS, right? No, nobody ever wants to to hear the the churn conversations. But it, you know, when you're you're trying to get ahead of churn and you're trying to figure out why churn happens, very rarely is it one thing that happens. You know, very rarely is it. Well, I had this one conversation with someone, or this one thing happened in the product. Some, sometimes it can can be the case, but usually it's, it's death by a thousand cuts. I hear that all the time. You know, it was all these little things that turned into a big thing, uh, in, in, in culmination. And that's why we've left. And so 
one of the things we've challenged ourselves to think through is instead of death by a thousand cuts, could we create a thousand moments? Are there ways where we can pause? And if I'm responsible for a certain number of customers, let's say it's 120 customers, is there an opportunity each week? Give myself a goal. Maybe it's three. I do three little things that to any person outside of this business thinks won't scale. So that could be as simple as I'm going to write a a handwritten note to a customer. I'm going to take a picture, you know, why wait for a QBR to put together a 150 page PowerPoint that no one will probably read? What if I take a picture on my phone of some key results that this customer has achieved that I know are a really big deal for them? And through an app on my phone, I'll send a postcard to their CMO, their head of sales, and others congratulating them on this milestone. Or, hey, I'm following Google Alerts and I know this company just went public. Let's call Drizzly and try to get them some champagne. Okay, maybe at scale those things don't work. But if you have structured your day, you have a great routine, and you have the, the, the true extreme ownership over the work you're doing every day at the front lines of the customer experience, those things that most people think can't scale, you can make happen. That's that's a really interesting approach too, and one that I'm actually a living, breathing example of. Uh, so I've actually never told this story uh, in a, in a public setting, like a podcast or anything like that. But Ooh, we're getting uh, <laughs> we're getting the inside story. I like this. So this was back when Drift had two T's, or is it two F's? I don't know. That's probably why they changed it because nobody <laughs> knew how the hell to spell it. Um, back of the Two T's, I think. I think it was two T's. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, this was back a few years ago. And I was at Litmus at the time, an email marketing software company. And um, I remember getting a package in the mail, uh, an envelope. And it was from Drift. And so I opened it up and it was it had a little handwritten postcard in there from David Cancel, signed DC. And it was a Kindle Fire. And the note said paraphrasing, this was a few years ago, so I can't really remember, but it said something about sure, like sure. Th- thanks for everything you've 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 contributed to the Boston tech scene, um, you know. Um, um, as a thank you, like I've you know I've reached out and sent this Kindle Fire and preloaded it with three of my favorite books. And he had a line in there about like you know the only um, the only shortcut is learning from others, and w- which I thought was great. And um, he, you know, I, so my first reaction when I opened this, I was like, oh, this is a game recognizing game, right? Like this is you know DC <laughs> said I'm sure I'm not the only one, but that's cool that he thought of me. Um, sure. Fast forward several months. And I used to have a personal podcast called Louder Than Words, and I had Jess Iandiori on, who uh, was with Drift for for a little while, working with Drift. And she started talking about lead gen tactics and and things that um, they had been trying at Drift. And one of them was, you know, picking out a handful of companies that they really wanted to work with, and finding somebody at the company who who like ran marketing and and sending them a Kindle Fire. So Jess had no idea that I was one of those people. Oh, too um, funny. And I didn't, I didn't blow up her spot on the podcast because I didn't want to sure. make her uncomfortable. But more than sure. anything, it was just like, oh, okay, I see you. I see you, Drift. Right, uh, right. And, and I thought it was, I mean, to this day, I have that uh, Kindle Fire sitting somewhere. I think it's on my bookshelf. Um, I love it. But it I was, it. It was uh, obviously, it was something I remembered. I'm talking about it today. But I remember thinking to myself, man, that's, I mean, that uh, when you're first starting out, that's, that's a really great idea, especially for companies, if you have a handful that you really want to work with, but that's not going to scale. But what you just shared right. is, is sort of like a, an approach where that can scale, right? Sure. Which sure. Is, and it's at the core of your story as well. When you, when you share that, it makes things personal and makes things human. Um, and I, I can't tell you how many times in you know, my career being customer facing or client facing, you often hear 
uh, or you read, you know, I, I consume as much as possible about services, um, you know, not just SaaS services, but service in general. Um, you, you know, you sometimes hear about these things that uh, you're unable to do at a certain size. And what's interesting now is customers demands a human experience because they expect it. And it, it's crazy because when you think about, when you, you break it down, it's this very strange, complex juxtaposition, right? At, at Drift, we're creating conversations through artificial intelligence and and bots, but we're trying to, to figure that out at the intersection of this time when customers want the most human experience possible. And, uh, you know, it, it comes from, I think, taking the time and taking the opportunity to recognize that this job is one that Sure, you learn great uh, analytics, you know, abilities to analyze data and and make decisions from data as well. But you must also be someone who has the capacity to learn and understand and value a relationship with a human being and a company, um, because often these companies didn't buy drift or or buy whatever product it is because they really really wanted it. It's it's a compliment if they did, but they usually buy it because they wanted whatever drift does and whatever the impact of that is. And so the analogy, I borrow this from a thought leader in, in customer success. His name is Greg Danes. He shares a story about how most people don't go to a hardware store. Um, hard, hard word for me to say with my Boston accent, <laughs> a hardware store <laughs> and buy, buy a drill because they really, really wanted a drill. They bought a drill because they want the whole. And and that has always stuck with me because it's it's then building the trust and building the understanding to recognize who are the people involved and what are the types of holes the different people at that company want because usually it's not just one, right? It's it's one with certain specifications, but then somebody else wants one in a different place and once you earn that trust and you build that credibility, uh, you're able to really get in there and recognize what their needs are and you can relate to them at a human level and and help them. Right, you need you need different drill bits at that point, right? You the drill exactly. and the drill bits. Exactly. So that must be harder, though, right? When uh, for a company that's growing as quickly as Drift is, is that a constant moving target, right? Or or do you guys? Uh, maybe this is a better question. Who are who are those people, and and sort of what are those challenges, or what are those you know holes that they're looking to drill? Sure, sure. It it is it is challenging, and it, it's different for every every single one of our customers. Um, you know, you may talk to a company where uh, the the individual responsible for marketing has made the purchase, and they were in really strong connection and collaboration with sales, and they've already talked to their sales team about it, and they're good to go. Um, in other cases, uh, you know, you have somebody who bought it at the beginning of the year, and then you have a sales team who needs to adopt it. And, and that's where the, the element of understanding the human dynamic and relationship comes into play. So recognizing, all right, who is the evangelist on sales? Who's going to help us run this, drive this, get everybody else on board? Do people understand why we bought this? Um, so again, when I go back to the red, yellow, green, purple dots on on a you know usage metric spreadsheet, that is important for sure because you want to know if if the product is being used and if it's being implemented. But you also need to recognize you know what is going on from a, a change management standpoint. And you know I look up to companies like Slack who really have nailed the change management component of their software implementation. Where yes we care about the fact that it's turned on and it's being used, but we also need to understand where those relationships are at the, at the organization level. And then who's responsible for, for driving 
this adoption and making sure that people feel like they have what they need to understand what's happening and and the why behind this purchase. Uh, you know, I, I often and again, it's it, it's sometimes too just relating relating to the context that uh, folks who are the primary adopters of the tool are, are living through. You know, here we are at the very beginning of a year. Uh, people are trying to hit a number. Uh, it's after the holidays. Everybody's getting back on board. And if you're to roll out new software that you didn't have a, a sort of stake in when it was purchased, what would your perspective be? And sort of putting yourself in in those shoes as opposed to thinking, well, they're just not using for all these assumptions I'm going to make based off of data I'm looking at. You, you got to know it. You have to know why. There, there's a story behind the the data you look at daily. Right. And to do that well, to tell that story well, or even uncover that story well, there has to be a strong relationship between customer success, sales, marketing, because I think it's really easy for the marketing team or to go even more micro than that, like content writers on the marketing team, like to kind of go off on their own and they, they find things that are interesting to write about and they blog about it. But I've always found that the best sales collateral, the best marketing collateral you have is probably in the customer success team, right? They hear the problems every day. They hear the successes every day. So how does your team, like what does that relationship look like at Drift? Uh, how do you inform marketing and sales and, and product too, really, right? Like if sure. if somebody's going to quickly discern the value, that should be in all those areas. So how challenging is that? And how do you guys do it at Drift? Sure. So the the way I would describe it is, is it's fluid. Uh, there's no process procedure. There's no, hey, when you have a request, you must, you know, pose it here and, and wait for a response. Our our goal is to, to drive as much uh, just action at the front lines as possible. So uh, an example I'll share with you, we were seeing patterns. One of the, one of the things we care a lot about is, you know, what are the, what are the patterns we're seeing with our customers and, and the people who often know that the most are our customer advocates. So our, our customer advocates are the team of individuals who respond to chat, talk to our customers live on a daily basis, in addition to our, our customer success managers. And then our, our sales team, you know, our sales team is constantly talking with uh, prospects as well as existing customers. And so uh, we heard some some different stories coming from the front lines about customers who were having challenges because they simply weren't driving enough traffic to their site. And as a as in response to that, you know, Drift probably to them wasn't going to be the right tool moving forward. And so um, it, I think in, in many places you could say, okay, well, that's interesting, but it's not what's on deck for us to talk about this month market you know, on our marketing calendar, you know, whatever, whatever the rule is for content you get out. And instead, uh, sort of goes along with the faces of our customers. Uh, We want to have a voice to our customers. So we're seeing things and we want to proactively put out as much content as possible in response to the things we see people getting stuck on or we see as hurdles. And so uh, we had a member of the sales team partner with a member of the customer success team to take the collective of those conversations they had over a period of a few weeks and in partnership with marketing, get a piece of content out there to support, you know, here are the five ways we've seen work best in driving more qualified traffic to your website. Um, so it's, it's things like that. Uh, you know, another, another piece I'll, I'll talk through is um, in, in customer success. So we have a customer team and support. So the team who are our customer advocates at the front line are, are part of the team as well. And so 
notion of triage and issue escalation and, and how you manage that. Uh, our goal is to operate very similar to the fluidity of a production team in engineering, where instead of having projects that you're executing against on a quarterly basis, we call them customer lifecycle sprints. So literally every single day, we have a focus of making the customer experience better, whether you're a customer advocate, part of the customer success team. And the goal is when you see something, say something. You know that that in essence is our protocol. And when you see something, have a conversation with the person you know is the individual responsible for driving improvement in that area of the customer lifecycle, and make something happen. As a company, we have what we call show and tell every Friday. So at the beginning of the week, teams go into into their week. They know their objectives. They know their focus. They know the thing that they're trying to work toward for their customers. And at the end of the week, we'll reflect on areas we were able to improve in the customer experience. And they don't have to be the big, giant, sexy things. You know, I go back to the um, the analogy of death by a thousand cuts. Sometimes it is the little things. Hey, this piece of information that used to sit in a part of your playbook was so annoying because it didn't make any intuitive sense. We're, we're giving the power to the people at the front lines and making sure they know they have that power to raise their hand and talk to the person who's designing that product to say, hey, we've heard this enough. Here are some examples. Please help us. And the goal is to move as quickly as we can on things like that. And so um, our motto is, you know, no fences, right? There are no imaginary fences between teams. Uh, and we want to operate that way as much as we can for as long as we can. That's a great approach. Um, and we... We kind of touched on this earlier, um, but to sort of go back to this, you've talked about the uh, like your your background isn't traditionally in customer success. Obviously, you've come to see great success there, um, but in, in in doing so, you bring a, a very unique approach, right, and a unique mindset to it. And you've talked a lot about hospitality and that experience mm-hmm. and the role that that's played with you, and how as a hiring tip for other organization, like to look at that, right? Look at hospitality experience because it translates very well. So what yes. what's what role has that played for you, and why does that why is that such an effective way at viewing who could be a, a successful customer success rep? Sure. Um, so I'd say first off, a lot of people discount this. Uh, I've had conversations with people before who say, you know, I didn't want to put that on my LinkedIn profile or on my resume um, because I didn't think it was professional, because I was a bartender, because I was a server, or you know, other companies too potentially look down on that as, wow, you were you know waiting tables as opposed to doing something else. But um, the reality is, you know, that that was my life. I, I have worked as 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 much as I could, as as early as I legally could to make money, because um, that was my life. And um, I think a lot of other people grow up working and you develop what I call the third eye of hospitality. And by virtue of being in in that type of environment, and I, I tell the story in, a, in an article I wrote for Drift, um, you know, I was a function waitress and sometimes a function bartender. And you have these events and you have people who are your customers and they have very specific needs and they have guests and you are responsible for that going well and also responsible if that thing goes poorly. And as you watch and observe and you're in the center of people, you know, often these things are ours. If it's a wedding, if it's some sort of function, you start that third eye of hospitality, you, you start to develop it. And what it is, is you've seen stuff happen enough 
that you learn to anticipate what's going to happen. So you recognize that people are going to walk in and not necessarily know where the restroom is or where the coat check is, or people are going to want to be instructed of what to do. And your, your role is to usher them. And in years of doing it, you just get more and more comfortable with recognizing that there are these patterns and these trends to how um, humans behave when they're in an environment and they need someone to help them and and they're being serviced or served. And I recognize that sometimes too. We've done a few drift events and I, I gave feedback to somebody in our sales team recently who I've noticed twice in a really positive way. You can tell he naturally sees this when there's an event. You know, nobody's asking him to to work as host or to go above and beyond for people who are guests of our events, but you naturally see him recognizing that people are in need of support or in need of some sort of uh, direction. And he, he hosts and he helps. And I, I mentioned that to him and he's like, well, I grew up in a big family and I'm just used to being in a <laughs> position where you, you look out for your siblings and, and your family. And so, you know, whether it's hospitality or a dynamic like that, where you've been responsible for, for others, I think that's where it comes from. It's a, a place of empathy and a place of, you know, genuinely being tuned into the needs of other people. Um, and, and I think it's really, really important. And so when you have somebody who's, who's had to, to work in hospitality or, or work in service to others, um, it's something that, that often people come to the table with this skill set they didn't even realize they had uh, by virtue of having done that role. Right. That's a, it's a really interesting way to, to look at it. And again, makes it more human, makes it more red-blooded. And uh, I think it is true. I think, uh, I think a lot of people might have that experience. Maybe don't put it on their resume. Uh, right. I, I remember I worked in a, a restaurant for like th- three or four years when I was in high school into college. And I think one of the things that you pick up from getting more reps of, of helping people is you almost can look at somebody's eyes before they open their mouth and you already know what they're yes. going to ask. Oh, you, exactly. You need to know where you put your coat. Oh, you need to know where this is. And it becomes a sixth sense. And I think by developing that is what kind of you're saying. It's transposable, right? You can be in a tech environment. You can, uh, you know, you can get another job and sort of reuse those same skills, right? That that sense doesn't go away. I think you just need the reps, right, in the seat. Um, exactly. And I'm sure you must see exactly. that when you when you bring on new folks that when they're in that seat for a while and they talk to more customers, they probably develop right like a sixth sense of what they need before the customer even knows that they need it, and that must be a great feeling. It is. It is. And, you know, often people talk a lot about the art or science or the art and science of customer success and will discount that, right? Um, you, you hear it a lot in the things you read and in the things you watch about customer success that, you know, you can't just go by feel. And I, I agree with that. I, I think, um, you know, you, you certainly just can't go by feel and say, well, I'm, I'm good with people and I'm a relator and so therefore I'll be great at this job. It's the balance of both, but it's, it's also recognizing it's not one or the other. It has to be both. You know, you have to have a strategic data-driven understanding of what's going on in the business, but at the center of that business. And the only reason you have a business is because you have human beings who are paying you money, who have true needs, and you need to be helpful and you have to help them find that value. And and that doesn't happen by luck. Like that happens because you're able to engage with them and and help them find what they need. Um, I think, you know, part of it too is is looking, I, I like to look outside of SaaS for inspiration. I share the story on the Seeking Wisdom podcast. Uh, uh, you know, I'm the mother of two little boys, and the place you never want to go is Children's Hospital. And we ended up there this summer. Everybody's fine. 
Um, but we ended up there. And I remember after the experience, I, I said, you know, I was floored and totally blown away by my experience as, you know, the mother of, of patients going in from parking our car through check-in, through registration, the level of care. And, and that I, I tried to break it down. I was like, why did I feel so cared for? And it was because everyone genuinely recognized that people don't want to be there. You know, even though you're you're lucky to be at such a great a great place, you don't really want to be there. And it's very anxiety-driven. And um, because there's that recognition, there's this wonderful sense of help helpfulness and you feel like you're being helped. You feel like you're being listened to every step of the way. And I, I lean into that a ton when we think about new systems we're building to make things happen. And I stop and think, okay, if I'm experiencing whatever this thing is, we're attempting to construct, would I build it the same way? Would it make the, would it make the most sense? And is it solving the problem? And is it addressing the experience we want the, the person who's going to be going through this to have, um, and if the answer is no, we go back to the drawing board and, and we re- rethink it. Um, we, in fact, had the uh, the head of patient services at Children's come into Drift to talk to our entire company about what uh, what they call warm handoffs. So the way they hand off patients uh, between nurses changing shifts because they got this feedback that the systematic way of doing it just felt really impersonal and human. And these customer, these patients felt like they had to retell their story to multiple people. And all of us here, it was hysterical. All of us were like, oh my gosh, that happens to us all the time. You have customers who are like, didn't I just tell you the reason why I bought? And didn't I just fill out a survey? And now I have to talk to this other person who I don't know. And, and so leaning into experiences outside of SAS to see, you know, what what are other places doing to humanize and create better experiences for the people they serve, whether they're patients, students, customers, what have you? That's such a good outlook because I think most of us tend to compartmentalize our experiences as a customer with, uh, against what we do as a marketer, right? And so like every single day you're going through things as a customer that could be useful to you in some way as a marketer or customer success person, as a salesperson or in business in general that um, maybe we overlook. So that's such a great, uh, just such a great approach. Um, And probably one that, that kind of leads into my next question, which is like improving uh, improvement, like improving that process. You, you've kind of drawn that there's a distinction between, how do we make this experience better and instead focus on improving the process, right? Like, uh, and I think this was another soundbite of yours from the Seeking Wisdom podcast. Um, can you talk about sort of uh, the difference between the two and why focusing more on the process and improving that is 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 just more important? Sure. Um, so I think of it, when I say improve the process, I, I think of it more as improve the life cycle experience. And what drives me bananas is if you if you Google customer life cycle, you often see a straight line that only goes to upgrade, downgrade, or cancellation. But if a cycle is truly going to be a cycle, what gets a customer into a cycle? And how do you define that cycle? And for us at, at Drift, it's we want a customer to buy and have a really strong, fluid experience from point of purchase to first conversation with a member of our team who's going to help them see value from our product. And then from there, it's understanding what we can do 
to drive that momentum and that urgency and excitement that they had during the sales process to fruition as fast as possible. So they're spending fewer and fewer hours, minutes, days in implementation. You know, the analogy I use is, you know, say you buy a drill and you're spending all of your time taking the drill out of the box and putting the pieces together and sorting the drill bits and, you know, pulling everybody else from your team who needs to touch the drill before you get it set up. And instead, you know, how can we improve and increase and decrease that time to value so that you're in the business of, of making those holes and you're making those holes as quickly uh, and as strategically as possible. And, and then that change management component. So you've, you've shown them the way you've supported and moving quickly and making this happen. Then it's driving the adoption throughout the rest of the organization and getting them into this cycle where this is now the way they do business and the way they generate leads. And so for us, it's less about, okay, here are the 12 steps to the process, but more here is the context for which we want our customers experiencing our brand and our product every day. Think about ways we can make that better. Um, and that and that's really what we come to the, the table with. And so on a weekly basis, a few things we've we've recently rolled out our our pages. You know, we'd have customers who come to us and say, Hey, I'm leaving the department I'm in, I'm going to a different part of marketing, but this new person's going to take over. You see that a lot in sales and marketing. They really don't know what this is. And our content was kind of crummy. Our content was very sort of like us driven or industry driven. It was a had a bunch of like consulted consulting words. You can probably blame me for that because my delayed backgrounds. Um, but, you know, all this lingo that wasn't, didn't really tell you anything. And so again, leaning into our brand, our voice, we're conversational. We want to be as real as possible. We went back to the drawing board and said, okay, if, if we had a customer in here with us and we were trying to describe what the experience would be, forget formal PDFs, forget all of the structure and language. Let's just tell them what they're going to get and how they're going to experience it. And let's put faces to names. Um, this is the one place I'm comfortable with having our own faces because it's it's introducing customers and future customers to the team who will be servicing them and partnering with them. Um, so we, we took this thing that was sort of like the static piece of paper, sort of like a brochure, and turned it into a pretty dynamic uh, experience you go through when you you land on customer success at Drift and it shows you the faces of our team and walks you through with as clear language as possible what it is you can expect from us. So that's one thing. You know, we looked at that and we're like, this is this is creating a delay in understanding what it is they're buying and what they can expect. Let's let's make it easier for for customers and future customers to recognize expectations. Um, another small thing. Again, we're a growing company. If, if we were to ever have, uh, you know, something that was impacting our service or something going on with the product, we didn't have a great way of notifying customers in a day. We were like, we need to set up drifthelps.com or excuse me, at, at Drift, Drift Helps uh, Twitter handle to immediately send out notifications if something's going on. We'll create a status page. So we do things like that as quickly as possible to get it shipped, just like we do in product. Um, so it's trying to adopt that customer lifecycle mentality and constantly thinking about improving. That's a, that's a great approach. Uh, similar to agile and experimentation and, and all that kind of stuff. How much of what you, what your team does is, is experimental? Because like you said, you're, you're using insights that you learn as a team and then translating that into improvements. Um, 
uh, and the volume of users and, and visitors to the areas that you're improving must be high. So do you test things? Do you just go all in and make a change 100% and see how it performs? Like, what does that process look like for determining whether something is actually an improvement or not? Yeah, I, I mean, we we look and and see if it is right. So we we don't have a formal a formal way of you know driving consensus around. Here are the you know five approved experiments. Let's run. Um, instead, it, it really comes back to what are our priorities and can we, with clear definition, um, say that this thing we want to invest time in or money in or whatever it is. Can we tie it back to something that is in our priority list and a focus of ours when we think about the areas we need to to consider for the customer experience? And depending on what it is, you know, if it's a sort of like low investment, low cost, low risk, roll with it. You know, often my question is, what stopped you from just doing this as opposed to us now meeting for 45 minutes going through details of the future? You know, like roll with it and see what happens. If it's at a larger scale, um, again, we don't want to create red tape, but we want to to recognize, like, does this really satisfy a customer need? What I found is, as you approach things that way and sort of drive that inversion process of classic internal, um, you know, business structure, uh, what sometimes can happen is you have people who are running experiments because it's a sexy idea and it'll get a lot of attention, but is it really going to do anything on the other end? And and the other thing I'd say, you know, it's it's less about creating the process, but create establishing an environment where people feel comfortable challenging and and debating, and and that's really where a lot of the conversations end up. So it's less of a here are the five steps to experimentation versus, hey, let's talk about this. You have a, a strong belief that it's going to happen in this way and it's going to drive this improvement or drive this experience. Uh, I see it a little bit differently. Here's why. Let, let's have a debate. Let's talk about it. Um, so that often becomes um, you know, part of our culture of, of getting things out there and, and thinking things through in a way that challenges your beliefs versus applauding for simply coming to the table with an idea. That's a great approach. Right. Um, and so I kind of wanted to end here. Drift is a company that's obviously growing very quickly, well-funded, employee count continues to grow significantly. What's going to be a big focus, uh, not just for Drift, but for the customer success team, what's going to be really important for your team as the company continues to scale um, in order to to keep that finger on the pulse with the customer and continue to improve? Yeah, it it starts with the team knowing what their focus is and and knowing their commitment to what they're doing every single day and the value it brings to the company. Um, if, if you if you go to a, a building site, uh, you you often see the signs for dig safe, and, and I like to think of it as like scale safe, meaning. Once you get to a certain size, you can unintentionally, just by you know virtue of of speed and pace, lose your connection to the thing that your specific job every single day impacts. And when I say scale safe, it's the idea that your team knows the vision, they know the objectives, they know the definition of their role. It may sound silly, you know, if a manager is listening to this, they're probably like, "Wow, how could you? How could you not know that?" Um, but it happens. Um, and also, you know, do they, do they get the stakes? Do they know what we're after and why? And so, um, something, something we do on a weekly basis, we don't wait for, you know, a yearly annual review or a quarterly review. We are constantly communicating with the members of our team and, and creating avenues for feedback and conversation. Um, one of the things we're starting to implement is on a weekly basis, uh, 
putting that overview of, you know, are you clear in the objectives? Are you clear in your role? Is there anything that's unclear? Uh, do you understand uh, what your your priority is and your focus? And if anything's ever in question, we're doing something wrong as, as a leadership team. And so I think it, you know, being able to, to build a great experience for customers comes from people who come to work every day and know that they're they're working toward a very important role that's going to drive an impact in a specific way. Um, I often kid around too, <laughs> cancel will probably kill me, but I'll say to the team, I'll say, you know, you're not, your job isn't to impress your boss. Your job isn't to, you know, come in and, and wow, David cancel. It's to impress your customers and, and to get them the results they want. And these are, these are the things we're going after this year. And, and here's how your, your customer's success will be a large contributing factor to that. I'm sure that would impress DC anyways, right? Happy customers. So that We'll see. <laughs> well, Julie, we'll see. good luck to you and your team and to everyone at Drift. Obviously, we're we're, we're big fans of Databox. We Thank integrate you. with Drift, so we obviously have have a stake uh, in in your success and uh, follow you guys closely. So good luck with everything. Thank you. And, um, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. You're super honest, very transparent, and, and thanks for, for dedicating this much time to talk about everything that your, your team has going on. Anytime. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.